As we continue in the book of Galatians, I want to talk just a moment about one of my books that were a favorite when I was a kid uh, and still enjoy the story very much. Alexandra Dumas wrote a wonderful adventure that has been not only published in almost every language available, but made into films many, many times, The Three Musketeers. And it's a wonderful story. In the opening of the book, we meet a young man, D'Artagnan, from Gascon. He has come to Paris for one purpose and one purpose alone. He wants to become one of the king's musketeers. And he is very excited. He tends to have a little bit of youthful arrogance in him. And he's going to meet the captain of the musketeers, Trevier. But on his way, he has altercations with three different gentlemen and challenges each one to a duel later that afternoon. He is completely oblivious that he has just chosen to have a duel with three of the best musketeers, Porthos, Athos, and Aramis. And uh, when he gets to the spot, they show up all together at the appointed time, and D'Artagnan is not daunted. He is ready to go to battle because he is the best swordsman in all France, he thinks. Fortunately for young D'Artagnan, because the story would have been very short, it would have been a short story instead of a novel had he taken them on, Cardinal Richelieu's evil men show up and the four band together to fight them. And in the course of time, as they fight common enemies, as they try to protect the queen and the, and France itself from all who would bring her down, these people become fast friends. So much to the point that they then begin to live out what is probably the best quoted statement through all the book, The Three Musketeers. All for one and one for all. Now, it's not hard to see how that phrase has captured people's minds, even if you've never read the book or seen the movies. Because we all want that kind of connection, don't we? We want to know that we have comrade in arms, so to speak, friends who will stick with us and fight with us and for us uh, by our side, come what may. We want to be, at least in our heads, we want to be the kind of person that is always reaching out for others and looking out and taking care of our friends. Well, what does this have to do with us today? Well, we're going to take a look at Paul. His argument with the false teachers is coming to a head. He still will have a little bit more to say about the law before he goes into the practical side of the book that says, now that you know these things, how do you live? But in today's text, he's going to remind his readers who they really are in Christ and what they are supposed to be to one another. So we're going to be looking at Galatians 3, 26 through 29, and I'd ask you to stand as we hear from the Word of God. I will let you know that the text begins a little oddly with the way it reads, but you need to keep in mind the passage we looked at last week, the law, how it was our guardian, and it showed us our sin, and that's all what we were. He now is going to say, but... That has changed. 
So hear the word of the Lord. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. God bless the reading of this word, and you may be seated. In our text, the Apostle Paul wrote that all believers are part of the family of God. Every believer, every anywhere in the world, was part of the believer and the family of God. And he lets us know, for us today, we need to understand that our identity as members of the family of God is what brings us hope and peace and promise. So we're going to take a look at at what it means when Paul declares that we are one in Christ. What does that mean for us? We're going to look at three, I think, very exciting truths that go in this text. And the very first, well, folks, all believers are children of God in Christ through faith. Now, John Pippis pointed out that most people are joiners. We're by nature joiners. We join clubs, societies, associations. We form close groups of friends that we can gather strength from and comfort from in times of need. Um, we find a certain degree of security and identity when we join those groups that make us feel we're one. But the primary institution where people begin to learn if they have a healthy relationship, the, the, the basic relationship in life that sets the stage is the family. It was instituted by God at creation, and it is the most basic societal group. So it's not surprising when we look in the scriptures and over and over again, God uses the image of family to describe his relationship with his children and their relationship with each other. We are, the Bible says, God's household. He is our father. Christ is referred to as our elder brother. And we are brothers and sisters, one for another. Now, two diverse theologians, a Dutch Arminian Reformed pastor and scholar Gerhardus Voss and a dispensationalist, Charles Ryrie. Now, you may have no idea what those terms mean, Take it on my word, these two would agree about almost nothing. Their two positions of theology clash over and over again. But both of them and many others have pointed out something that we don't always get or don't always remember. The scripture actually uses the phrase, the Son of God, or its equivalent, four different ways in the Bible. And it doesn't always mean what we think. First of all, Paul, in Acts 17, Paul's witnessing to the Athenians. And he says, we are all God's offspring. He's talking to pagans as well as believers that might be in the midst. We are all God's children. And there is a concept of God's fatherhood of every person on earth. And what that means is we are his creation. He is our creator. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to understand the image of God is in all 
people. It may be marred from the fall, but all people are as God's creation. As such, all should be treated with dignity. We need to remember that. Then we see, most predominantly in the Old Testament, we've meet it, first of all, in Exodus 4.22, Israel is the Son of God. God has redeemed the people of Israel. He has called them his own. I will be your God. You will be my people. And in the Old Testament, you find people saying this a lot. They talk about our God. They don't talk about my God. Jesus changed everything when he started talking about my God and taught us to to do that. When Paul said, we individually can cry out, Abba, Father, that's brand new. And that is based on the way the word Father and Son are used between God the Father and God the Son. That is a unique relationship that can never be completely mirrored. And the, the eternal reality of what we call the Trinity, again, my favorite quote about the Trinity is, he who tries to understand the Trinity is in danger of losing his mind, He who denies the Trinity is in danger of losing his soul. It's bigger than we can get, but God is Father to the Lord Jesus Christ in a very specific way. And in Matthew, when Christ is being baptized, there's a voice of God crying out, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then finally, we come to the way the the words are used in our text. God has again, a very particular and specific relationship to the people who by faith in Jesus Christ call him Father. And when Paul says all believers are children of God, in that one statement, Paul moved the idea of sonship to a whole new level. Up until this point, Paul has done a lot of talking about you are sons of Abraham. You are the descendants of Abraham. And the the Judaizers had a hard time with that because these were not Jewish people. But Paul said, you are sons of God. And here he's saying, we, the people of God, by faith who have trusted in Christ, fully connected with the God of the covenant through faith in Christ. One writer put it this way, believers in Christ are united with him, participate in him, are incorporated into him, and as he is God's son inherently, so in him they become God's sons and daughters by adoption, anticipating now by the Spirit what is to be fully manifested in the coming of glory. We're just getting a taste of what it means to be a son, a daughter of God right now. And one day we will be in front of our Father forever, for all eternity. And that relationship will be in its full manifestation. Now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, here, in Christ. Now, that can be taken two different ways, seen in two different translations. King James takes it this way. For you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The reason you are children of God, you have faith in Christ Jesus. The ESV and most modern translations say it is for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So it either could mean that sonship is realized by faith in Christ, or I believe the most likely sonship of God is a state of an intimate union with Christ. 
We now have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Frankly, the world can't understand. This is why some of your th- friends think you probably should be locked up in a, in a place for those who have lost all sense of reality. The world says we're foolish. Have any of you actually seen the billboards spouting up all over our country during the time of Christmas? Reason is the reason for the season. And they dismiss Jesus completely. And we get really upset with that, but folks, they can't understand. They've not met Christ. They don't know Christ. They don't get it. And so we need to understand this. We are not just spiritual descendants of Abraham. We are not just a community of faith wrapped around the idea of faith as seen in Abraham. There's something more here. We have passed from this spiritual immaturity of transgressions who needed to be shown the law to know how serious our condition was. We have passed from the little child that still needs the guardianship to make sure they mind their P's and Q's. We have passed that into children of the living God. We are fully justified people moving into spiritual maturity and note, Paul says this is true of all believers. Doesn't matter how long you've known the Lord. It doesn't matter what denomination you are. If you have faith in Christ, if you are in union with Jesus, you are all children of God. Now, why would we ever want to go back to the law? Why is it that we heap up all rules and regulations and say, okay, you got saved by grace through faith, but you better work hard. To keep it, why would we go backward? We're God's children. Folks, let that sink into your head a minute. This is not a matter of pride. This is not a matter of ego. This is not a matter of, boy, look how great I am. I'm God's child. No. This is a matter of humility and wonder and thankfulness. God saved me and made me his own. So when I say we are children of God, how does this work out in day-to-day living? Well, my friends, we need to begin showing a family resemblance to our Father. There's a, a really neat way the Scripture uses the phrase, son or sons of. Now, it can mean a physical descendant, someone who has shared DNA with a father, but it all is also used in a descriptive manner. When the Bible said you are a son of something, it was saying you are like that. Think about James and John. They are so angry at a village that's rejected Jesus. They want to call fire down from heaven. They want to obliterate this, this village, completely destroy it. And Jesus calls them and says, you are Bonagernes. Sons of thunder, you're like a horrible thunderstorm, a lightning storm destroying everything in its path. And Jesus is making a point, that's not what you're meant to be. I understand the temptation to call fire down from heaven. I understand what are known as imprecatory prayers in the Psalms. When we want to pray, God, get them. That's human. I understand it, but it is not supposed to be our relationship. Instead, 
In the Beatitudes, Jesus is going through all this list of wonderful qualities that define what it means to be a disciple. And in verse 9, he makes this statement. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Folks, from before time began, our Father in heaven already had a plan on how he would redeem the human race. And he set that plan in motion. And God is in the business of reconciliation, bringing people who are at war with him into relationship with him. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians says, and God has given us this ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to be drawing people to God because, my friends, we are no more like our Father than when we are trying to build bridges, trying to bring healing into brokenness, trying to bring people to God. So when God says here through Paul, you're my children. He's saying you should be like me. 1979, Amy Grant had a hit song. I, it's my, one of my favorite of her songs, written by Gary Chapman, that describes what I'm saying here. It says, I may not be every mother's dream for every little girl, and my face may not grace the mind of everyone in the world. But that's all right, as long as I can have one wish I pray. When people look inside my life, I want to hear them say, she's got her father's eyes. Her father's eyes. Eyes that find the good in things when good is not around. Eyes that find the source of help when help just can't be found. Eyes full of compassion, seeing every pain, knowing what you're going through and feeling it the same. Just like my father's eyes. My father's eyes. Folks, we are called to see this world through the eyes of our father. And all those people, we want fire to rain down from heaven, are people God has created and loves. And so, let's be like our father. The second truth is very closely connected to the first. All believers are clothed with Christ. All believers are clothed with Christ. Now, what is Paul saying here? We try to understand it, the basic truth of what he's getting across for us. At the time of salvation, followers of Christ took on a new nature. And he uses two images to show that. Baptism into Christ putting on Christ as a garment. Now, this is the only place in all of the book of Galatians that the word baptism is spoken about. And the exact nature, the relationship between faith and verse 26, it is in Christ through faith you are children of God. Because you have been baptized, there has been a lot of heated debate throughout church history. What is the relationship? between faith and baptism. And some have taken it very simple. That in verse 27, Paul is saying, for you to be a son of God, you must not only have faith in Christ, you must be baptized into Christ. 
It's sometimes called baptismal regeneration. If you've not been baptized, you're not truly a child of God. But I think there is a different issue that we need to look at, and we need to look at this statement in light of the whole context of the book of Galatians. And in the whole context of Galatians, do you remember what Paul is telling these people about the false teachers? They're telling you, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised to be part of the family. And he is arguing the whole thing. It is, we are justified by grace through faith alone. Circumcision doesn't complete your salvation. It isn't part of your salvation. It is a justification that came because you trusted in Christ. Now, after all of that, over and over again, these people are wrong. Is Paul actually, can I use an old Western term, changing horses in the middle of the stream? You know, your, your horse is about to drive, so let's jump on another. After all saying, it's not Jesus plus circumcision, is Paul now saying, now see, the, what they're wrong about is you don't need to be circumcised, you need to be baptized. And that will complete your salvation. That will make you whole. Is he going to change one outward ritual for another? And it's a little bit absurd to think that. And I apologize to all my brothers and sisters who believe it. It's hard for me to get that Paul all of a sudden would change what he's been saying. I think it's precisely not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying you don't need baptism any more than you need circumcision. Faith in Jesus plus anything is at odds with the truth. We are justified by grace through faith. So what does it mean? Why does he bring up baptism? And why do we baptize? If it doesn't add to our salvation, why do we go through this ritual of baptism? There are some denominations that have quit baptizing. They say we don't need it anymore. Baptism, I believe, is a sign of our union with Jesus Christ. It is a declaration, he is my Lord, I am following, given publicly in view of other people, saying, I am now a follower of Christ. And in the first century, if you got saved and there was water around, you got baptized. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. What's going to keep you from coming to Christ? Well, is there anything that would prevent me? No, just trust him. Okay, I'm ready. There happened to be some water. Happened to be. Just like Philip happened to find the Ethiopian. God put it all together. And the man was baptized. It was an immediate response. But it was a public declaration. I belong to Christ. It was part of that thing when we're confessing him as Lord. Now, why do we do it? I don't, I have been accused of being simple at times and biblicist at others. Why do we do it? Jesus ordained it. He gave us ordination. And it's right there in the middle of the Great Commission. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything I've told you. We do it because Christ did it. Now there's, there's something very important about baptism. We don't always think about this. And we should. If I were to ask for a, ra- a show of hands, 
of how many of you have ever doubted your salvation. I'm not going to ask that because I don't want anybody to be placed in the, the arena of needing to come to the altar and repent. If I ask how many of you have ever doubted your salvation, I'm pretty sure 100% of the people here would say there have been those times. Do you remember when God kept having Israel build altars everywhere they went? Even in the Red River Jordan when it's dry? And that, uh, that monument would never be seen again. But they always knew it was there. And those monuments were there to remind them. In that beautiful song when we sing, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, it's not talking about Scrooge. Ebenezer is the stone of remembrance. For us, baptism is a stone of remembrance. When the doubts come, when the enemy says you're not good enough to be a Christian, and none of us are good enough, it's about grace. But you can't really be a believer. I can look back to that moment in time, and I can know at that moment in time, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I received the gift he gave me on the cross. And when I was baptized at the age of eight, I didn't fully understand all that meant, but I understood one thing. I was telling that church in Ropesville, Texas, I'm a child of God. And we can look back and find strength and hope. And Paul says, because you're baptized in in Christ, you have been baptized, you're baptized into Christ. With Christ, you are now clothed. Now, Paul talks uses the phrase putting off and putting on frequently in his, in his writings. It normally means put off that old way of life, all those things you shouldn't be doing, and put on the things that belong to Christ. And in almost every place those words are used, they're imperatives, they're commands. It isn't, I think it'd be a really good idea if you'd leave those things alone and start doing this. He's commanding, you need to stop living like the world. Here, it's not a command, it's just a statement. You have clothed yourselves in Christ. And the image of putting on new clothes, the the Galatians would have understood this from being a Gentile. The mystery religions that were very prominent in that area of the world at the time that Paul wrote, most of them had initiatory rites similar to our baptism. And when they were being baptized, they would take off their old clothes, and after the baptism, they would be giving a very particular garment that indicated there were subtle signs on that garment, others would understand I am a follower of Mithras. I am a follower of Sibeli. It marked them. So the Galatians would have been familiar with an idea of putting on new clothes after baptism, completely different meaning. It would also have been an incident that they would have understood just from the way they raised their children. Up until the end of adolescence, and parents, please don't, amen, or anything right now. Uh, Up until the age of adolescence, children were dressed as children. When it came to the place they are now recognized as adults, they put away the clothes of children and started wearing the clothes of adults. Now, for our statement, and there was a point in time in Christian uh, life early on where believers would go and be baptized and when they would come out they would be given a brand new set of clothes to wear 
But it wasn't a, cl- uh, a dress that would say, I'm a Christian, look, you can tell I've got a Jesus on my, a, a fish on my gown. No, it was signifying the old me has died and I'm a whole new creature. I'm something different than what I was. And Paul says, in this, you have moved from death to life and you are now in Christ. That's such a beautiful idea. That phrase, in Christ, is Paul's, one of his favorite designations for believers. It's wrapped up in our identity and our identifying with and our living for him and our surrender to him. You're in Christ. So again, what does that mean for us? We can actually begin looking more and more like our Savior. Do you know that it is God's plan for you to be like Jesus? Do you really understand this? This isn't an idea that preachers tell you to make you straighten up your life. When we can't straighten up our lives on our own. This is the plan of God. In Romans 8, Paul, there are two verses. The first verse, verse 28, has been so often misinterpreted. Uh, 28 of Romans 8 does not mean everything that happens, anything bad that happens to you, there has to be something good that comes along, a different something good. It's not a vague idea of karma. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God will use any and every circumstance in your life to bring you further along in your discipleship, to make you more about the the Lord Jesus. And verse 29 explains that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why were you saved? Jesus saved me so I wouldn't go to hell. Well, that's part of it. But that's not all of it. God saved us so that our lives on this earth would be transformed. And more and more, Jesus would be shining through. We are called to live a life that brings honor to the Lord we serve. We are called to be witnesses. We've dealt with that a lot. We're called to be witnesses, not just with our words, with our very lives, the way we behave, the way we treat others. When we put on Christ, when we begin to show the love that he showed, the compassion that he showed, the sense of peace that he brought, the hope that he gave, You and I can have an impact on this world. In tonight's class, John Stott will answer a question. Why are our evangelistic efforts so often failures? And I will give you a hint. It has to deal with this idea of being in Christ. You have to come tonight, 530, to hear the rest of it. The reality is, For us to become more like Jesus, you and I, this is our action, this is our application. We need to begin living in surrender to the one who saved us. Because it's beyond our own abilities. I don't have, when I got saved, my temperament wasn't changed immediately to where I never want to call fire down from heaven. My, my, my ability to follow God 
was I didn't go from zip to perfect when I became a Christian. My life is a, a lifelong journey of growing and becoming more like my Savior. The only time I will finally be like Jesus is when I see him face to face. It is beyond our abilities to pull it off, but it's not about our willpower. And the clearest example of this I can tell you about, scripturally, is found in the words of our Savior and Lord. It is a night that he will be arrested. The following day he will be crucified. And he knows what's happening. He's gone into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He's brought his disciples with him and he's brought the inner core, the the three that are with him often, and ask them to be praying so they won't fall into temptation, and they keep falling asleep. We looked at this on Easter. And listen to the words of the Savior, the Lord. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That's our hearts. That's to be where we are. We need to learn what it means to yield ourselves into the hands of our Father. We need to learn what it means to surrender ourselves to the move of the Spirit. And a few weeks we'll be looking at the fruit of the Spirit, those, those things that come into our life that make us look like Jesus. And a key element is there is letting the Spirit do His work. We quit fighting. We quit struggling for mastery. We acknowledge this Lord that we call Lord. We begin to say, Lord, let me live with you as my Lord. Because we're clothed in Christ. This, this, this morning I went through uh, a little moment of deciding which, which blazer I was going to wear today. And I chose I'm going to go for bright, such a bright day. But when I put on this piece of garment and every other garment that I have maybe for the tie, uh, those clothes covered me. They enveloped themselves around me. When we are clothed in Christ, he envelops us. He is upon us, he is in us, he is with us forever. And we need to start living what we are. Saved to become more like Christ. And then there's one final truth. And this one is both exciting and challenging. All believers share in this reality with no exceptions. Hear that again. All believers share in this reality. We are children of the living God. We have put on Christ with no exceptions. I want to be sure you really get this. Would you repeat those last two words with me? Ready? No exceptions. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul lets us know. And I don't want to burst anyone's bubbles. And I like bringing up Jay because he used to joke, God has no favorites, but I'm his favorite. Paul made it absolutely clear that God had no favorites among his children. Now, those of you who have multiple children in your family, you've heard from the beginning, you're supposed to have no favorites. And everybody says, I have no favorites. And that's not always true. And most of us know it. 
Rachel and I stopped at one, so I could say I have a favorite child. On the other hand, I could say I have a least favorite child as well. Um, but God has no favorites. Now, about the middle of the second century AD, there was a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Judah ben Eli, who, who brought together a series of blessings that are still found in some Jewish cycles of morning prayers. And I want you to hear how closely it echoes what I've just read to you in an opposite way. And it's been said, Paul may have prayed something very similar. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, and forgive me, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Now, F.F. Bruce points out something very interesting. This is not Rabbi Ben-Eli just saying, everybody on earth that isn't like me is garbage and trash and need to be destroyed. He was making a recognition of the, the society in which he was in. All three of those, the foreigner, the slave, the woman, were disqualified from several aspects of Jewish religion. And those privileges belonged only to those free Jewish males. So it is harsh. When the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, is there anything that will prevent me from being a Christian? He had just come from Jerusalem. He was a God-fearer. He believed in the God of Abraham. But he was not allowed to become a Jew because he was a eunuch. The law forbade that. So that man, this man, could not worship God the way he wanted to. There was a prohibition against him. So he's wondering, okay, you told me this beautiful thing about Jesus. What's going to keep me from knowing him? And Philip said, absolutely nothing. You need to trust him. So when Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male and female, he was bringing a pertinent truth to his people. He said, you are all one. And we need to hear this. John Stott has laid this out in a very beautiful description. The distinctions. There was no distinction of race. Every person that has ever lived this world, has walked this earth, has been equal in the need of salvation. And every person that has walked this earth, say Jesus Christ, has been unable to earn or deserve salvation. He was perfection. Every person on earth that has ever been saved has come equally through Jesus Christ. And when all of those distinctions that human beings made are laid aside, we become part of the family of God. There was no distinction of rank. Virtually every society in history has developed some sort of class or caste system. Almost every society's circumstances of birth, wealth, privilege, education have divided men and women from one another. I have a PhD in theology. 
Why should I listen to anything you have to say? That kind of mentality. I drive a Mercedes, which I don't. My client refers to my Mitsubishi Mirage as my Porsche, and he's not trying to be ironic. He just likes the word Porsche, and he wants to tell me he likes my car. People have always found ways to say, I am better than you are. Sometimes it has to do with the degree of melanin in our skin. Sometimes it has to do with what we own, what we wear. Sometimes it has to do with are we educated or are we not, the jobs we have. Paul was saying in Christ there is no snobbery. You can't look down on somebody because of their status in society, because of their social economic situation, because of their work, whatever. You can't look down and say, Paul is telling him, I am better than you. Now, the Judaizers have already broken those two ideas. You're a Gentile, so you can't get saved. You're not a Jewish follower of God, so you're not in the right status. But then he did one more thing. There was no distinction of sex. And I want you to know when Paul says, and he doesn't say, literally it's not, there is neither male nor female. It literally is, and there, there is no male and female. And this statement that he made was light years in advance of what people thought in his day. You see, in virtually every culture that Paul went into to preach the gospel, women were looked down upon. They were despised in the ancient world. Now, there were some matriarchal societies, but very few. Most women were looked at as property. In Judaism, even, even though there were protections in the law for women, most men considered their wives their property. It was not unusual for women to be exploited, to be ill-treated. But here... Paul says, at the cross, men and women are on equal ground. Back in Texas, I had a church member whose daughter loved to try to get me in debates. And one of her favorite debates was she insisted that Paul was a woman hater. I kept giving her passages of scripture to look and said that Christianity elevated the role of women in the world. This is long before any kind of movement that said, I am woman, hear me roar. Paul is saying, men and women are equal before Christ. There is no barrier in fellowship. Now, this does not say that all of those distinctions just disappeared with Jesus. The racial, the social, the sexual distinctions were not obliterated. Uh, we are not... And I know this is this has been the go-to kind of phrase that is being used by a lot of people today, saying, I'm colorblind. We're not. We notice what the amount of melanin in people's skin, we see that. It's not the idea of pretend everybody's alike, because we're not. It does not say that We don't understand there are cultural differences. There are education differences. We can see those differences. 
when Paul said Christ had abolished these distinctions, he does not mean they don't exist. So hang on, because this is what he does mean. In Christ, they don't matter. In Christ, when we come to the Lord Jesus, receiving the salvation he bought, he doesn't go through a checklist of whether or not we, we fit the right crowd. It doesn't matter. There are no barriers in fellowship. What Paul is saying, every person who comes into the family of God comes in the exact same way. All sinners who don't deserve salvation or grace, who have trusted that Jesus Christ has paid the way for salvation, And therefore, I need him. And I receive and I confess him as Lord. All of us the same way. The Judaizers did not like that, but that was the reality. And what does this mean? Again, for us, the barriers that divide us should come down. We need to understand and we need to get this at the very depths of our being. All of us are sinners before God. None of us can walk our way or work our way into heaven. None of us deserve salvation. We need to understand that. So none of us are better than any other. And we come to, we need to understand that. When I, when and if I assert that I am somehow better than this person over here, this person who is not my nationality, this person who doesn't have my education, this person who doesn't speak my language, when I look at them and I say, you know, they smell funny, they look funny, they, they're not like me, therefore I am better than them. If that ever happens in us, we have entered into the realm of being a respecter of persons. And James says, that's not God's way. If we exude a spirit of privilege and rank in the kingdom, that somehow, folks, and I mean, I really do, I'm not better because I'm a pastor. When God saved me, when God called me, he didn't touch his magic wand upon me and change everything bad to everything good from now on. I am like you. I have a different role in the kingdom of God. I have a purpose in the kingdom of God, but I'm not better. And the moment we begin to think we're better, we've blown it. The disciples were actually arguing, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, when they're asking that question, they all clearly have an understanding. Me. It's like the recording of an old rabbi talking to his son, and a true rabbi, he said, if there are only two godly men in this world, it is you and I. If there's only one, it's not you. The moment we do that, So Jesus hears him, and he calls him over. Have you ever been called away from the crowd to be told something? It's usually not what you want to hear. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must first be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. You want to be great in the kingdom? Serve other people. You know what happens when we develop the servant's heart? When we finally realize I'm not better? And I'm supposed to be a servant, and I'm supposed to look after you. I'm supposed to take care of you. I'm supposed to do all those things. Do you know what happens? All of a sudden, I don't need to be the greatest in the kingdom anymore. Because I found what I've been called to live and do. So, we need to start living as the family we are redeemed to be. Paul will come back to the idea of being one. And how that plays out in a very practical sense later in Galatians. But folks, we're called to be a family. Now, I have an opinion, and I don't want to offend anybody too badly, but I think all families are dysfunctional. They're just different degrees of dysfunction. All of us mess up. None of us are perfect parents. I certainly wasn't a perfect son. They're all problems. So I'm not saying we're supposed to be like an earthly family. We're supposed to be the family of God. As children of the living God, what Paul is saying, we are equal before our Lord. We may have different roles, we may have different callings, but no one is better than the other. And as children of our Father, as part of the family, we should live out what that means. Family people are meant to love each other, protect each other, embrace each other, give grace to each other, give help to each other, not eat each other up until we do. Until we learn what it means to live as children of the living God who have placed our faith in Christ, who have clothed ourselves in Christ, and until we understand we are all equal and need to treat each other with respect and dignity and love, we should not be disillusioned And I know that we are. We should not be surprised when a world that is marked by division and strife and hatred looks us in the eye and says, you're no better with me than me. You talk about love. You talk about grace. You talk about, but you're just like me. You're no better than me. And the truth is, without Christ, we aren't any better. Our sins may not be as horrible in our own eyes, but without Christ, we're lost. And without learning what it means to yield to him, we will never understand what it means. When Paul lets us know we are one in Christ, we won't understand it, we won't live it until I start saying, Lord, live in me. Philip Yancey wrote an article in Christianity Today. Yancey, you may be familiar with his name. He's written a lot of books and co-authored some. One, one of my favorites is Fearfully and Wonderfully Made that talks about our, our, the, the physical side of our humanness. And it's, he's a great writer. But he, he said, as I read, read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. And he mentions Paul may have prayed that kind of prayer. Thank you that I'm not a woman. 
But Paul says here there is no neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And he says he was talking to a pastor from India. And this gentleman told Yancey, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. Before you'd say, no, you remember the story of the Pharaoh's magicians? who were mimicking everything that Moses had done up until one particular miracle. The enemy can confuse and mislead people. So the man said, most everything you do can be seen in our churches. The Christians can be seen in most Hindu and Muslim congregations. And he said, but in my area, area, where he lived in India, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, race, and social groups. That is the real miracle. When Christianity begins breaking down the caste system of India, that's a miracle. And he said, diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. That's what we tend to do as human beings. That birds of a feather flock together is a sociological principle. But he said, church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. So just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? And when I read this, ouch. When I walk into a new church, the more its members resemble each other and resemble me, the more uncomfortable I feel. Folks, there are a lot of people in this world that desperately need Jesus. Some almost within the sound of my voice Here, uh, I hope you realize here on the Gulf Coast, we are not like Mississippi anywhere else. And there are people from different nationalities, different races, different education backgrounds all around us with one commonality. They need Jesus. And we need to make sure they know in the body of Christ, you're welcome. You don't have to look like me. You don't have to sound like me. You don't have to dress like me. Trust in the Christ who gave himself for you. You're my brother. You're my sister. We are one in the body of Christ. So we need to remember all children of God in Christ through faith. All of us here who know him We're sons and daughters of God for one reason. We've trusted in Christ and have faith in him. We need to remember that we've been clothed with Christ. And we need to start living that reality of becoming more like our Savior. And we need to proclaim there are no exceptions to this truth. So to have an impact on our world for Christ, we must begin living in the reality of what is ours in Christ. We must set aside any idea of superiority. We need to put away our pettiness. We need to put away our pride. Uh, 
We can't be like John's disciples who are arguing, John, that guy Jesus you baptized, he's baptizing more people than you are. We need that to do John. He must increase, I must decrease. It's not about me, it's about Christ. We need to reflect our Father and our Savior. And if we do that, then those who don't know him may start seeing a different kind of Christian than they're used to. Maybe they will see a believer who really is loving, who is living the life they talk about, and they're serving. Because we have started to act like our Savior. So today, I'm asking, will you open yourself up to this truth that in Christ, we are the family of God? Will you submit your will to the one who saved you? Will you begin asking God, do within me what needs to be done? I want to be like Jesus. That old gospel song, let others see Jesus in you, is what it's all about.